This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 290 for Monday, January 21st, 2013, Failed Stars. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Good. Did you notice I added that, director of CosmoQuest? I did. That's very exciting. Well, we've been doing CosmoQuest for so long, and we keep forgetting to include it in all the things that we do. So for anyone who's never heard of CosmoQuest, what is it? It is an online research facility designed for the public. So we work to bring anyone out there who's interested in becoming part of solar system and space exploration an opportunity to engage in the same ways that scientists do. We have citizen science activities, we have weekly seminars, uh, we have a whole range of different ways including forums. We we wove in the Bad Astronomy University Today forums into CosmoQuest. We have a whole variety of ways for you to get involved and I hope you'll take the time to check it out at CosmoQuest.org. Yeah, you can, you can classify uh, craters on the moon, search for icy objects in the solar system. You know, really our goal is to try and help regular folk uh, combine with scientists to do real science. And, uh, and this is where we're, this is what we're doing. So. And, and we're succeeding. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, it's awesome. Okay, great. I have one quick announcement. So sorry. So, so we are in the process of phasing out the AstroGear store because while we love all of you, you don't buy a lot of things. And um, as, as we're working to to change out our staff, one our wonderful Joe Ray has gone on to wonderful and better things than us. We're very sad, but we're proud of him. And he was the person running our store. So we will continue to offer T-shirts into the future, but everything else we have is on closeout. So if you want to buy things, now is when you should buy things. So that's astrogear.com. All right. Buy things. Buy, buy things. things. All right, well, I'm going to give, now Now can we start the show? Yes, now we can start okay. the show. All right. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by 8th Light, Inc. 8th Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. 8th Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.8thlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. So if you get enough hydrogen together in one place, gravity pulls it together to the point that the temperature and pressures are enough for fusion to occur. This is a star. But what happens when you don't have quite enough hydrogen? Then you get a failed star, like a gas, giant, planet, or a brown dwarf. Today we're going to talk about failed stars. Wah, wah. So sad. But actually, I think, but it, you know, failed stars are actually like super common. So maybe more common than regular stars. Um, There's a lot of them out there. Yeah, I don't think we have enough statistics yet. That's the crazy yeah. thing is we've only been finding these things since the the 80s, really. And and it's it's only been with the two mass survey and a few others that we've really started to be able to find them in a meaningful way. And we're only finding them by the hundreds. 
but we find red dwarfs by the bazillions, basically. Yes. <laughs> okay, so let's um, so let's talk about sort of the just the process of what it takes to make a star, and that will sort of help us understand why things fail. Right. So, so as we have entire shows on this, go back and listen to one of the shows on this. But it, in short, what happens is you have a giant molecular cloud of gas and dust. And all of this material, as the cloud gets shocked by something or gravitationally compressed by something, all of this gas begins to collapse and fragment. And the individual fragments will begin spinning. Uh, sometimes they'll split into multi- multiple pieces. This is where binary stars come from. And some of those pieces just aren't quite big enough to fuse hydrogen. And that's where we end up with failed stars. Now, where things get messy is, well, then where do baby planets come from? So in this case, you have a, a fragmenting, spinning, chunko molecular cloud. And in its core, you end up with a star forming. And around that star will be a disk of material. And that disk fragments into pieces that are orbiting around the primary star. Now then, when you have binary stars, you end up with two collapsing, spinning bits. And the non-disky bit that's that's the star and you can actually end up with disks around both of those fragments that are forming the binary star so this can all get very complicated but key component here is planets form in a disk of material through an uh, an accretion process whereas stars form via the fragmentation of molecular clouds and the collapse of those fragments into things that hopefully burn hydrogen Right. And so really, you know, we define that star as that ability. Enough mass has come together, enough is going on that you've got that fusion and the star ignites. And our sun obviously is one of these these stars, but they get a lot smaller, right? To still have they do. Yeah. So how how small how how small can you get when you still have star? You still, you know, you still get a success ribbon. The cutoff is near as we can tell, and we haven't actually found the smallest possible star that you can have yet. Uh, As near as we can tell from theory is between 80 and 85 times the mass of Jupiter. So at a certain point, you stop using the sun as your unit of comparison and you start using Jupiter. So take Jupiter, multiply by somewhere between 80 and 85, and hydrogen will start fusing. But if you were going to go the other way and look at, say, the sun, what percentage of the sun would it be? Like around ten percent, right? So, so compared to the sun, the, these are tiny objects. These are about seven and a half to eight percent the mass of the sun. So, tiny, tiny, tiny stars. And I always find the process of these these red dwarf stars really fascinating because they're, you know, they have no radiative zone. Right? It's all convective zone, and the whole thing is just churning its material. And they actually last a really long time. Right. They can keep the stellar fusion going. And and so this is the red dwarfs yeah. that we're... Yeah, so these are red dwarfs that we're talking about. They're fully convective. So just like with your lava lamp, you see the blobs going to the surface and then going all the way back down to the bottom. In red dwarfs, you have the same process going on where there's nuclear fusion going on in the core, but then the hot material rises up to the surface, fully circulating. Yeah. So when a red dwarf finally finishes the hydrogen process, it's pretty much used up everything that can be used up in the star. But it'll last, you know, those small ones, they're going to last trillions of years. Yeah. 
these these are the longest lived things in our galaxy. Yeah, totally. So okay, so so that's sort of where we set our limits. And so anything above seven and a half percent of the sun, you've got star, and there's really no, I guess, a hundred times the mass of the sun. You know, that's a big a big range. <clears throat> so. But obviously, you know, you're, you're going to end up with clumps of hydrogen coming together at smaller amounts than this seven and a half this times the seven and a half percent of the sun. So what do we call these? Those, those are where you start to get into the brown dwarf stars. The, these are objects that, well, it, we define them not just by how they form, but also by how they sort of kind of, but then not very successfully for very long, do have a fusion process in their core. So with brown dwarf stars, these are objects... These are objects that are 13 to, well, 80 to 85 times the mass of Jupiter. And at that cutoff, they're able to very briefly burn tritium and deuterium in their cores. These are heavy forms of hydrogen that have extra neutrons in their centers. Where do those come from, that, that extra hydrogen, the, the heavy forms of hydrogen? It's just one of the components of the universe. You look around the universe, you're going to find heavy hydrogen. Uh, oh, I see. And so there's like a certain percentage of just a blob of hydrogen yeah, that's going to exactly. have those those heavy elements in it. Okay. So just like water, there's heavy water yeah. and we find heavy water in the ocean. It's just part of our ocean where some of the H2O formed with a deuterium atom in it instead of just straight old hydrogen. And so does this stuff like fall inside the the star and clump together or is it just a a percentage of it that's able it's able it's to just use? a percentage of it that it's easy that it's easy for it to use is the key uh right. hydrogen doesn't burn when it's missing those extra neutrons nearly as easily as the the heavier forms with the extra neutrons in it so physics simply lets these stars more readily burn and then doesn't allow it to burn hydrogen that is missing these extra neutrons and unfortunately the heavier forms of hydrogen are much more rare and so because it's rare i mean it's only a small percentage of the, of the overall object that's made up from this stuff so so how much energy how much heat how much how much can it do well, it, at the end of the day, it, it's able to burn only for a few hundred million years. And so you have this fully convective little star that, depending on just how big it is, um, in some cases they can actually burn some lithium as well because lithium burns very easily. Uh, but it's it's only for a few hundred million years, and once they're done, they're done. And And how hot do they get? <laughs> That's the really kind of awesome thing is these things are are uh, during their, their normal observed state, uh, in some cases, basically human body temperature on their surface. Um, really? Yeah. So so we're looking at stars that in general are under a thousand degrees Kelvin. Right. But, but way hotter. It, the deeper you go, right? I mean, it, even it, Jupiter is hotter, right? Right, right. No, totally true. But but the fact that on their surface, uh, yeah. they, they get to be human temperature. And, and trying to figure out what to do to these forced us to expand the way we look at stars. We, we normally have the O's are the hottest, B, A, F, G. So we're, we're one of those normal G-type stars. K, M, M are red dwarfs. Well, as, as we started adding new types, they, they had to add an L-class, which are stars that start to have... Um, hydride bands in them. They start to have alkali metal bands in them. They then had to go on to add T-class stars. These are stars where we actually start to see carbon monoxide in the atmospheres of the stars. And it goes all the way out to, there's a handful of what we call Y-type stars 
And these are stars where we start seeing things like absorption lines from ammonia. And this actually made a much more polite and disturbing uh, mnemonic for how we think of all of this. Because we're used to girl girl kiss kiss me. Yeah is the normal one that we're used to. Now, we've added an L and a T and a Y, so it's become, oh, be a fine guy, kiss me later. Thank you. Right. Uh, So then is there a, I mean, is there this distinction between these brown dwarves that are actively consuming and burning this, you know, these heavier forms of hydrogen and the ones that have run out of fuel? Do astronomers make some kind of distinction between them? No, and and I honestly don't know if we've observed it anywhere that we can specifically say this one is currently undergoing nuclear reactions. The, these are extremely rare objects in our current observational data sets. I, I can't tell you how rare or not rare they are in the sky, uh, but because we're only starting to absor- observe them, we, we only have so many data points and they burn for such a short period of time that trying to catch one in our few hundred observations is actively burning. I don't know if statistically we can say we should have done that with certainty yet. But is it one of those situations where it gets to its temperature and then it just takes a really long time to cool down? I mean, I know that, you know, we talk about like uh, stars that turn into white dwarves and then the white dwarves will eventually turn into black dwarves, but that process is going to take billions and trillions of years for these stars to reach the the background temperature of the universe. And so, in theory... At, at the end of the day, these 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 just don't get that hot. They, they no, just don't get that hot. But they're still cooling down over long periods of time. They they are, but it's, it's not the same way you think of, of white dwarfs cooling off. With a white dwarf, you're starting off with something that's tens of thousands of degrees Kelvin. And and so when they cool off to a few hundred degrees Kelvin and become what we call black dwarfs, that's a massive change. These guys start off around a thousand degrees Kelvin and cool off to a few hundred degrees Kelvin. And so when you're looking at something like that, it's a very different situation. And and these these are just they're stars that don't work in the ways that we think of the smallest of them just like jupiter are are supported through normal gas pressure but the largest of them are supported just like white dwarfs through electron degeneracy pressure so here you have something extremely small fairly dense but not white dwarf dense all of them are are within 10 to 15 percent of the same radius so take jupiter and you add stuff to jupiter and it doesn't get bigger it just gets denser Uh, Keep adding stuff and it changes how it supports itself from gas pressure to electron degeneracy pressure. Their their temperature doesn't vary that much across the entire range. These things just don't behave in the way that we're normally used to thinking of stars because they aren't normal stars. They're this weird transition object. Okay, so I guess the question that I wanted to ask next then is, is what is the method that astronomers use to find these objects? Because they're not bright. They're not shining in the night sky. How do they find them? Infrared. And and it's it's not just that they're not bright. It's that they're not bright and they're not really giving off light in useful wavelengths. Um, it, it's perfectly possible to detect a very, very faint blue object, red object, with normal telescope. You know, big deal. They're faint. They're annoying. We can do it. 
Now, now brown dwarfs pose an entirely new challenge because they're so extraordinarily red that the bulk of their light is given off in wavelengths that aren't readily observed with your normal optical telescope. So you have to get above the Earth's atmosphere and you have to start using things like the WISE telescope. That's one of the instruments that's been used. They are found ground-based. Sloan Digital Sky Survey's done a lot of work finding them. But the easiest way to find them is to start looking in the IR. The other problem that you run into in trying to find these suckers is they like to cuddle up next to nice bright stars. And so now you have to start doing things like using what are called coronagraphs, which is where you essentially put a, a disc in front of your stellar disc on the sky, block out its light, and then look to see if there's anything faint near that bright star. So it gets kind of tedious to have to use a chronograph to look at every bright star in the sky to try and find brown dwarfs that are in binary systems. It's the isolated ones that are easier to find. Right. So the point being that if you know, you're going to get a situation where the star is in a binary companion with a brighter star, this gives you a way to to know where to look because right. they're so hard they're so hard to see and i know that people also were looking for them just in these stellar nurseries right they're looking for places where brighter stars are likely to be right so you so might find we look for them all the places we look for normal stars but they're annoying to find you really have to be looking in the ir and the near ir yeah now you know we've got the james webb space telescope coming out in the next five years Will that be able to help join the search for, for brown dwarfs? I, I think that that would be a, a strange use of such a powerful telescope to use it to survey for new brown dwarfs. But what it can do, and what I expect it will be doing, is imaging not just brown dwarfs, but also giant Jupiters. We're, we're now at the point that we're starting to be able to individually look at some extrasolar planets. Spitzer's done this in a few cases. And they, they've also looked at a few brown dwarfs this way and do individualized, meaningful studies of things that are already discovered. Uh, it, it really takes a whole family of different types of telescopes to first survey the sky and catalog what's there and then follow up in detail and understand what those objects really are. Right. And so it might not be the, the tool for surveying, but it's definitely right. be the tool for doing follow-up observations. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to be an enormous telescope. Hubble is like 1.6 meters, and this is 6.5 meter telescope. It's just right. It's enormous, right? But that makes sense. It might be a waste of its of its time to be surveying for them, right? Uh, so now you actually sort of led into this, right? We've got this situation. We've got these these brown dwarfs, the the high end of the of the failed star, but it's really a, a spectrum. I mean, wherever you get hydrogen clumping together, all the way down to nothing, <laughs> you know, you're going to have this, you're going to have some situation. So, so let's go the other way. And as we get smaller and smaller and smaller, less mass, I guess smaller is not a good way to put it, right? Because as you said, they, they kind of stay the same size, right. they just get more, more dense. So how does how does that work on the on the lower end? Well, I, on the lower end, this this is where things start to get messy. Uh, and people start to argue because we can't basically stick a probe inside of one of these extrasolar planets or brown dwarfs and try and figure out, well, did it ever do any burning? So, so what we start doing is looking, is there lithium in the atmosphere? If there's lithium in the atmosphere, it means it didn't burn lithium. So that at least puts one level of constraint on the system. Okay. And, and as we go down, people just start arguing. Uh, so we know that below 10 masses, not a planet. 
uh, we're pretty sure above 13 masses is a failed star, did have some sort of temporary nuclear burning. In that middle range, you have these weird objects snuggled up against stars that we call brown dwarfs, but they're at the 10 Jupiter mass level. And it's thought that there is either some sort of mass loss or something else happened. And, and so it's unclear what to call some of these objects. Are they failed stars? Are they bloated planets? And, and that's one where I think a lot of work on the definition still needs to happen and we need better models. And I mean, part of it is like, is it orbiting a star? But I guess that's the distinction, right? Binary. Yeah. Is it a binary Binaries. companion or is it a planet going around a star? And, and if we didn't watch it form and, and we don't see a protoplanetary disk that it's part of, we, we have no way of knowing did, did this object that we're looking at form via an accretion process like a planet or through a collapse process like a star. And now you mentioned sort of earlier on that that things like Jupiter, for example, if you added mass to Jupiter, you added, you know, you collided two Jupiters together, you wouldn't necessarily get a much larger object, right? No, you'd get an object the exact same size, more or less, within a few percent. That's one of the kind of awesome things. Uh, it, it's one of those cases where the density just keeps going up and the way the pressure and gravity balance, the radius stays very similar as you go from roughly Jupiter-sized all the way up to one of these, well, 80 Jupiter mass, not quite yet a star objects. Wow. Yeah. It, it's yeah. really kind of awesome. It's, it's, it's physics just balances out this way. Now, if you could look at one, like a brown dwarf, what would you see? you'd see a magenta object that has convective cells on the surface. So when, when you look at the sun through a really good hydrogen alpha filter and you magnify it sufficiently, you can see these boiling cells on yeah. its surface. Well, you actually have convective cells driving brown dwarfs as well. And, and brown is really a, a misnomer. The brown isn't something you get through additive light processes generally. Rather, they're this deep, deep magenta. I hate to say this, but they're basically the color my hair currently is. But yeah, they're magenta objects, and brown is just much easier to say and spell. So sort of a reddy, yeah, a reddy color, but with big, so like on the spectrum of a red dwarf, but deeper red, darker red. So red dwarfs are much more Crayola in color. This is where you start to get to that deep maroon, um, the, the MIT blood on concrete is the joke they use, that, that deep maroonish, right. ruddy color. But I mean, if you look at Jupiter, right, you see it's got these bands and these storms on, on its surface, and yet when you reach the brown dwarf size, you've got convective cells you know, blobbing up like a, like a lava lamp. So, so where does that happen? Where do you go from one to the other, right? <laughs> it, it's all going to depend. Here, we only have one example with Jupiter, so yeah. it's, it's hard to say. So with Jupiter, what we're seeing is, is these different cells where um, we, we did an entire episode on, on the weather of these planets before where you end up with different atmospheric levels on Jupiter rotating the planet at different rates. This leads to bands of various colors going um, at different rates around the planet, which causes some to appear to move backwards relative to others. And you don't see the active convection. Now, we can't actually image 
the detailed surface of a brown dwarf. So uh, we're basing everything we know about what they would look like off of models. So based on what we know from models, you should end up with, with convective cells that, that are visible on the largest of these. But as you get to smaller and smaller ones, as, as you start to go from the later to the thank you part of our, our mnemonic out to the Y spectroplast stars, now perhaps you're going to start getting that banding similar to what we see at Jupiter. But until we have observations... I can't tell you exactly when these transitions take place, exactly when the convective cells start to get hidden by, well, weather patterns in the atmosphere of these failed stars. Yeah, I mean, I know that there were some observations of some extrasolar planets where they were able to see, like, they were tidally locked to their star, and and yet... Well, they the, don't see that they're tidally locked. They, no, they, but they but they, you know, they calculate that yes. they're tidally locked, and yet the heat was being distributed across the entire planet, and so there had to be ferocious storms right. that, were, that were transmitting, so that would, you would see these bands of these storms as they were swirling around the planet. Um, but, you know, if you got bigger and bigger, eventually just the, that convective process would, would take over. But there's no sort of clear line on where that happens yet. And, it's really interesting. and this is where we need things. We need orbital interferometry, basically. We, we need the ultra high resolution imaging capabilities from space where we can be above the atmosphere. And hopefully sometime in our lifetime, the money will be invested into science to make this possible. But until then, we have models in our computers and the models are at least getting better slowly. Now, I think there was a great uh, sort of misnomer that flew around the Internet a couple of years ago. And we've covered it a couple of times in Astronomy Cast, this idea that when the Galileo spacecraft, the nuclear powered Galileo spacecraft was crashed into the uh, into Jupiter, that it was going to ignite Jupiter and turn it into a second star. No. And, and that, based on the conversation we've just had, that concept was deeply flawed. Deeply, deeply flawed. Uh, yeah, right. no, Jupiter is, is it, that, that's like saying that, that me squishing a mosquito onto my skin is somehow going to cause me to go thermonuclear. Uh, no, it's not, even if it is a radioactive mosquito that's going to give me superpowers. Uh, it, yes, Galileo was carrying nuclear fuel on it. But that just means that it was giving off a lot of heat as those radioisotopes uh, did their normal half-life thing and decayed and gave off energy and powered the mission. It's not like it was a nuclear bomb or had the capacity to become one. And even if it was, it wouldn't matter. Right. We could blow nuclear bombs up in the atmosphere of Jupiter and it would disrupt the weather patterns for a while. But not that long. We've we've dropped comets on. Well, we haven't personally. We did that. The solar yeah. system has dropped. <laughs> yeah. The solar system has dropped uh, comets into the atmosphere of Jupiter, giving off the energy equivalent of nuclear weapons. And in yeah. in the process, Jupiter took it on the chin and healed up rather quickly. Yeah, and so the only way that that Galileo could do that is if it happened to have. 79 times the mass of Jupiter somehow. Uh, yeah, and even then it's questionable. It. To guarantee it, you need at least like 83 times, 83, 84 okay. times. Yeah, 84 times the mass of Jupiter packed into that little spacecraft, and then it smashes in and boom. And, and it has to be hydrogen too, so. And, and, and maybe if it was that weird red stuff that was theorized in, in right. the recent in Star, Star Trek, yeah. which doesn't work. Yeah, all right, cool. 
Awesome. Okay, well, thank you very much, Pamela. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info@astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+ every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you miss the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson.